More Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website, www.deanbible.org. Or you may write to Dean Bible Ministries at 5868 Westheimer, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. That's 5868 W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned... But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure, or this evening, we need to make sure, I've still gotten used to the fact that we have church on Sunday evening. We need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to, in the privacy of your own priesthood, in silent prayer, admit or acknowledge any known sins to God the Father. We have a promise in Scripture that if we admit or acknowledge our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is for the believer. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the issue is not confession of sin. The issue is putting your trust or reliance exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. We'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity that we have this evening to gather together in freedom to study your word and to proclaim the truth of what you have taught us in Scripture. Father, we thank you that we are in a nation that has, to this point, treasured and honored these freedoms. And Father, we pray that these freedoms might continue. We know that these freedoms have been won on the battlefield, that Men and women have given their lives in order that our freedom may be secured and preserved. And yet, as is so often the case, what is gained on the battlefield is often frittered away by politicians and legislators. 
Father, we pray that there may be those who would be diligent watchdogs on the legislative process that we might influence our leaders uh, so that they might preserve, maintain the freedoms that have been bought so dearly by those who have paid the ultimate price. Father, we are indeed grateful for the men and women who serve uh, even today in battlefields in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other parts of the world. We pray that those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ might have their faith strengthened and that the promises of your word would be uh, very real to them as they carry out their day-to-day duties. Father, we pray for those who are believers that they may also be faithful witnesses to those around them of your word and of your security. Now, Father, as we come together to study your word this evening, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge the Holy Spirit brings us, that you have given us your Holy Spirit who indwells us, and as part of his filling function, his role is to teach us your word. And, Father, we pray that we might be able to concentrate well, think clearly, and focus on your word this evening. And as God the Holy Spirit drives these truths home to each one of us, that we might have the spiritual courage to apply these things in our own life. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today is Memorial Day 2005. Memorial Day was originally called Decoration Day. There's some conflict as to who actually began Memorial Day. Of course, I have my own bias and prejudice. We know that there were ladies in the South, widows and mothers of Confederate soldiers who had given their life in the War of Northern Aggression, and they began to decorate their graves with flowers and flags during the war itself. There's also evidence that this took place in the North, so there's always a friendly competition as to uh, which area actually gave birth to this tradition. By 1868, there was a general order from General John Logan to observe this Decoration Day on the 30th of May in 1868. The first state to officially recognize the holiday was New York in 1873, and by 1890, most of the northern states had followed suit. Southern states still had their own separate days to honor the Confederate dead. In fact, that tradition goes on today, even though all states in the Union uh, remember not just the those who gave their lives in the uh, War of Northern Aggression, but also those who have given their lives in all other wars up to this point. However, in the South, Southern states still have their separate days. You may not know it, but the day to remember the Confederate dead in, the, in Texas is January 19th. Now, I had pretty much forgotten that, and I think that's because of its close proximity to Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday that it's probably pretty much ignored today because that would not be the politically correct thing to do that time of the year. But we remember those who gave their lives because they were fighting for freedom. This morning I had the opportunity to speak 
it was my fourth in a series of four messages out at uh, Country Bible Church in Brenham. And as uh, the luck of God's plan had it, I was teaching on the strategic victory of the Ascension. And so it gave me the opportunity to reflect upon the Battle of Gettysburg as a perfect illustration of how military strategic victory is exploited into a political victory, which even though the wrong side won, it is a, still a perfect example of what took place on the cross. Now we're going to get into the ascension in session again as we get into our study on the book of Hebrews, so I'm not going to go through that now. I will reserve that. But what most people don't understand, and what I'm sure you either suspect, or I know some of you are uh, fully aware of, the war between the states, as it's sometimes uh, called, and which isn't an accurate term either, and certainly not a civil war. Uh, I always like the term war of northern aggression, but uh, my northern friends like the war of southern rebellion, but that's because they didn't understand the issue either. We've been so mistaught on the whole issue of that war and what its causes were. Most people don't realize that it was a theological, or at least the roots of the whole battle were in theology. And what had happened in the four decades prior to the outbreak of the war was the North had been infiltrated by a system of theology based on human works and the idea of the perfectibility of man and the perfectibility of society. And it was predicated on a theology that that came out of what what is known as the Second Great Awakening and was spearheaded by the uh, uh, evangelism of, of a man named Charles Grandison Finney who founded a college, a Bible college, in Ohio called Oberlin College and which became a a hotbed of abolitionist thought. And the general idea was that if man is perfectible and society is perfectible, if man's not born a sinner but becomes a sinner later in life due to choice, none of which is is scriptural, then you can perfect society. So what you do is identify the, the the social sins, the social evils of your culture, And if we go in and can excise those, then we can perfect society and bring in the millennium. Most people don't realize, in fact, most of you don't know, that the vast majority of evangelical Christians in the 19th century in America were post-millennial. Post-millennial means that they believe that the return of Jesus Christ is at the end of the millennium. And the role of the church is to bring in the millennium or bring in the kingdom. We believe, and the Bible clearly teaches when it's interpreted in a historical, grammatical fashion, that Jesus Christ returns at the beginning of the millennium, and He brings in and establishes His kingdom. And once you get mankind thinking they're going to bring in the kingdom of God through their actions, because that flows out of arrogance, it always polarizes people. And that's what happened to the United States in relationship to to slavery, but the way they did it was based on this arrogant presupposition of postmillennialism, which is really portrayed in the song The Battle Hymn of the Republic, written by Julia Ward Howe, who was postmillennial in her understanding of Scripture, and she's meditating on Revelation 19 
when she writes this, and it is in her eyes, it is you know, when she talks about the campfires burning, and I think it's the third stanza, she's thinking of the federal troops, that the federal troops are bringing in the kingdom because they're going to do away with this uh, tremendous social evil. And in the South, the South never bought into this theology that had already invaded the North, and it opened the North to what became known as 19th century uh, Protestant liberal theology. And just another evidence of that, all the denominations split North and South uh, prior to the war. And uh, after they came, after the war, it was the northern branches that all sucked up liberal theology before the southern branches did. And the southern, for example, Southern Presbyterian did not really go liberal until the 1840s. And the Southern Baptists have yet to go liberal, even though there have been major theological battles in their ranks uh, over the years. And so what this illustrates is theology is important, not just because of your own spiritual life, but because it helps you understand history. But how a culture views God, man, and society affects their whole understanding of politics, the role of government, and the role of man in relationship to government. And that radically changed in the uh, middle of the 19th century and a totally new orientation to the role of government called federalism and big government was ushered in by Abraham Lincoln. And because they won at the Battle of Gettysburg, a strategic military victory, it allowed him politically to gain the high ground for, for federalism. And it has had a devastating effect on this nation ever since. And because of the arrogance that polarized the nation, because of that arrogance, we still fight social problems today uh, as a result of that. Now, England handled the abolition issue on a completely different theological basis. In England, the leaders in the abolitionist movement were two men, Granville Sharp and William Wilberforce. And both of these men were... Biblical evangelicals, unlike the northern crowd in the U.S., the biblical evangelicals in England believed in the total depravity of man. Every man's a sinner. They believed that Christ died as a substitute for man. See, Finney and that crowd didn't believe in substitutionary atonement because if man's not born a sinner, he doesn't need a substitute. He just needs an example. So they had an what's called an exemplary view of the atonement. So in, in uh, England, the biblical, uh, conservative, biblical abolitionists there uh, just believed the role of Christian was to impact and improve society, not perfect it. Therefore, they're grace-oriented. Grace-oriented instead of being arrogant. And because they're grace-oriented and demonstrate humility in the process, it didn't polarize British society. And because you don't have a polarization of British culture, there's no civil war, and the slave trade was abolished uh, in um, the 1820s, and eventually slavery was abolished peacefully, and you don't have the hangover. And it's a great illustration of the principle that a right thing done a wrong way is wrong. And, And you'll find a lot of people who don't agree with that today. It's amazing how pragmatic American culture has become 
in the last hundred years. The end justifies the means, and the end never justifies the means. A right thing done in a wrong way is always wrong, and you can't come in and justify it afterwards, no matter how much you like the results. So that's just a little note on uh, the impact of theology on history. Now, theology also impacts your everyday life and how you handle the pressures that come your way when you live in an environment, in a culture, in a country that is hostile to biblical presuppositions and to biblical teaching. And this is the case that we have in the third short letter of the seven letters at the beginning of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. This is the letter to the church in Pergamum. The letter to the church in Pergamum, verse 12, begins to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Write these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And here on the overhead is a map of the western part of what is now Turkey. In the north you have uh, the Dardanelles. Here's the Black Sea just up on the upper edge. And this is the Dardanelles. Istanbul is located up here. This land mass at the very top is in Europe. And the land mass here is Asia. And these cities that are indicated by the uh, blue dots are the seven cities that were addressed in these seven letters in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. Now, I'm going to do something in a few weeks that I've never done before, and that is to interrupt a book study. So that's going to be a real challenge for all of us, but I'm going to interrupt the study of Revelation 2, uh, at the end of Revelation 2, to go into a short three- to four-month series on basics. So I'm going to prepare you for this now, because it's come to my realization slowly but surely over the last few years that we need to have in our arsenal a good basic series that you can give to either unbelievers as a part of a witnessing tool or to new believers to help them understand the importance of Bible study and the importance of learning the Scriptures under a rigorous method of training. Now, that is just foreign to most Christianity today. I mean, what passes for pop, popular evangelical Christianity today won't ever train anybody to do anything but clap their hands, stomp their feet, and utter a bunch of gibberish and go home and talk about what a wonderful experience they had with God. They never really learn the, the things of Scripture. For example, uh, this, just this whole study that I've done on Ascension and Session of Christ, which is foundational to the whole book of Hebrews, is considered by the writer of Hebrews to be basic doctrine. And yet, whenever I've taught it, it just blows everybody's hair back. And they just think it's so difficult and so hard and so complex. And uh, the writer of Hebrews thinks it's basic doctrine. Yet it's not. We've lowered the standard and we've dumbed down the teaching in the pulpits of America so much in the last 50 years that what now passes for extremely deep doctrinal teaching wouldn't have even gotten out of an adult Sunday school class 30 years ago. Would never have made it into the pulpit. 
And uh, nevertheless, we have to be honest with the fact that this is where our culture is today. We've got to deal with people where they are and not where we wish they were and not where they ought to be. And, and so I want to put together this series, and I'm going to do it on Sunday night. That's the best venue. And one of the things I want to do is shape these lessons in terms of the issues of today so that it... Uh, we'll cover the same basic material you do in a base, any basics course, but we're going, I'm going to try to shape it in light of all the postmodern assaults that are going on today so it has uh, a little more resonance, perhaps, in terms of where people are in our culture today. And uh, in, in a nod to the fact that things have dumbed down so much, I'm going to try to keep them to 35 to 40-minute lessons. Now, I know that's you're thinking, hmm, you ain't going to do that. Well, I want to give it a try. Because the average person out there that has never been exposed to solid Bible teaching can't handle, never been exposed to hour, hour, and 15-minute type of teaching. And so the purpose for this series is to provide that introduction to give them the, uh, the, an understanding of basics what you need to know to survive as a believer, but also to give them a challenge that they need to go beyond the pablum of kindergarten Christianity that, is, that, it, that characterizes most of our churches today and get involved with something that really gets into a study of the Word of God. So we will take a break at the end of chapter 2. So that's going to take five or six weeks before I get there. And... Uh, and then we'll go forward. So we're on this third church at Pergamum. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So we've looked at Ephesus, we've looked at Smyrna, and now we've moved 55 miles north of Smyrna to Pergamum, which is not on the coast. It's 25 miles inland. A few pictures from last week. It's on a, in a river valley, and the population of Pergamum at this time was about 150 to 200,000. This was a major city in the Roman Empire. It had been the capital of the kingdom of Pergamum for a number of years, but since the uh, early part of the first century B.C. had been part of the Roman Empire. It was characterized by a very uh, rank, and I mean that in a negative sense, uh, in terms of stench, a very rank paganism that was extremely militant. Everywhere you went, everywhere you looked in Pergamum, there were symbols to the various deities in the Greek and in the uh, pantheon of Anatolia, which is the ancient name for modern Turkey. There was an Acropolis, as there is in almost every Greek city, a high point, and on the Pergamum Acropolis, there were dozens of temples to Zeus, to Athena, to uh, all of the other deities, the main ones being Zeus and Asclepius, who was the uh, later uh, symbolized by a serpent and was associated with healing. Here's a picture of the large altar to Zeus. It was uh, one of the largest in the ancient world of, of its type. And this was erected about uh, 
225 B.C. As a, to commemorate the victory over the invasion of the Gauls. There's the foundation to the Temple of Athena and the Temple of Dionysius. Everywhere you went, there were these enormous edifices. And if you've never been over to Greece or that part of the world or, or seen uh, any of the remains of what's left, you don't realize how enormous these places were. And everywhere you were in the city, you could see a dozen or more temples. So if you were a believer living in this environment, your senses were continuously being assaulted by the pagan uh, representations everywhere around you. Here's the walkway leading up to the temple to Asclepius. Now, the question arises, how do you live as a believer in the midst of this kind of hostile environment? And that's where we sort of ended last time, and we'll begin there in a minute. So in verse 12, to the angel that is the uh, heavenly witness to the outworking of the justice and righteousness of God in the church age, specifically related to the church in Pergamum, write, these things says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And that imagery of the sharp two-edged sword comes out of Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses, verse 16, it talks about out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And this sword is the Romphia sword, not the uh, shorter Machaira, which was both a defensive and an offensive weapon. But this is primarily an offensive weapon. It was the Thracian broadsword that was used to hack your way through the enemy. And so it, it primarily is an image of strong, offensive combat action, and it is used in Revelation to picture the judgment of God on a culture. And so it pictures him as the one who will come to judge. He is the one who wields the sword of judgment. And this is reiterated at the end of this short epistle where they are warned and challenged to repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them, that is those who hold to the false doctrines within the church, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So it pictures the Lord Jesus Christ as an extremely aggressive Warrior who is executing judgment on the church in the church age as he is uh, purifying and preparing his bride for the future. Revelation 2.13 describes his commendation, the commendation that the Lord has for this church. They are doing well in many areas, so the Lord commends them for that which they have that's positive. He begins, I know your works. And the, as we pointed out last time, the word know is the Greek oida, which indicates his complete and total uh, knowledge of every believer in every congregation. The phrase your works is not found in a few of the older manuscripts, but it is found in the vast majority of manuscripts 
so should be included in the translation. I know your works, that is your production. I know your production. The Lord Jesus Christ knows all of our production, both divine good and human good. Therefore, as our judge, he is able to uh, accurately evaluate our production. I know your works, even where you dwell. This is a problem. The particular test that this congregation has is is geographical. Where they dwell, this is the Greek verb, katoikeo, which means simply to dwell, inhabit, or reside. He says, I know the problems that you face as a congregation because you have to live in the midst of this hostile, overt paganism. Everywhere you look, you have to deal with this. And I pointed out last time that this is probably the, the, the worst form of it was emperor worship, the worship of the Caesars. The Caesars claimed to be God, and so in uh, Pergamum, they, had, they were the first to erect a temple to the worship of Augustus in 25 B.C. And in other cities and other towns, Christians were forced maybe once a year to uh, reaffirm their allegiance to Caesar, and this involved an oath to Caesar, that Caesar is Lord. And believers who were positive, of course, took that very seriously. And they could not say that because they believed that Jesus Christ was Lord, not Caesar. And so they would take a stand, and for many of them, uh, it would cost them something. And in Pergamum, it would cost their life. And it wasn't just once a year, but sometimes on a weekly basis, they would be confronted with this particular challenge. So it was extremely difficult to live in Pergamum as a believer, to conduct business, to be educated, to be part of society, because you were set apart from everyone else because of their rabid worship of the Caesar. So the, writer, uh, so the Lord Jesus Christ says, I know your production of where you dwell. That is where Satan's throne is. And I pointed out last time that uh, people have suggested various options for interpreting Satan's throne. The altar to Zeus or the fact that the, the, the temple to Asclepius was there, which was symbolized uh, by serpents. The throne is a seat of power prestige. So particularly... The Lord Jesus Christ particularly points out or emphasizes this demonic thinking that is prevalent in Pergamum. Here's a picture of one of the columns, the serpents that are on, uh, decorate one of the columns in the uh, temple to Asclepius. And here is a statue of Asclepius I ran across this week. And you see that he has a staff, and there is a serpent entwined around the staff. That, of course, later develops or evolves into the caduceus, which is the emblem that's used for a doctor or uh, the medical corps in the military. Another example, here you have a serpent up here in the corner in the tree. So this symbolism of a serpent was everywhere in Pergamum. Here's another serpent. Uh, on the side of this uh, fountain, and the again the altar to Zeus, so they lived in the midst of constant pagan pressure. Now, if I were teaching this in 1967 or 1927, it would have completely different application for us 
Because in the America of 40 years ago or 100 years ago, it was a very different environment than it is today. It was still an environment in those days that was hostile. You may not want to believe this, but it was hostile to biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity never finds a comfortable home in this world. There is always an antagonism between biblical viewpoint and human viewpoint. But it was a culture, uh, uh, even a hundred years ago, that still had a respect for biblical Christianity, even though at some levels there was a hostility to it, which is often what you find in the best of circumstances. It's very rare that you find a culture that is completely positive to the Word of God, simply because of the, the fallen nature of mankind. So they're challenged. Uh, they're, they're positively praised for their uh, consistent application, even though they are under this constant pressure. And the praise is, you hold fast to my name. And the verb there means to adhere strongly to something, to hold on to something. The idea of my name emphasizes the character of Christ. And then you have a synonymous parallelism in the next line, and you did not deny my faith. See, on the one hand, it's positively expressed. You firmly hold on to my name. You have a solid view of my character, the deity and the humanity of Christ, and his work as our uh, substitute on the cross. And then the opposite was true. They did not deny my faith. And faith here is used not in the sense of trust, but in the sense of doctrine, the belief system. You hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. You did not deny doctrine, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. Now, the name Antipas is a diminutive form of a common Greek name, Antipatros would be the full name, sort of like uh, Robbie is short for Robert. Uh, Antipas was a very common name in the Greek world at that time, so we don't know who this individual was or what the circumstances were, but apparently there were periodic local persecutions against believers. And this Antipas is praised, and which Antipas was my, literally in the original it says, Antipas was my martyr, my faithful one. And so he is praised for being faithful, that is, being consistent. And the word martyr indicates, in the Greek is martus. And martus was a term for someone who gave his testimony in a trial. And it came to refer to someone who gave his life because those who provided their testimony that they were a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ often gave their life during these times of persecution. So Antipas is designated as my martyr, the faithful one, or my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Notice how the beginning and the end of the verse emphasize the demonic aspect operating in Pergamum. Now, last time I pointed out that this does not mean 
that Satan personally lived there. This wasn't the seat of some sort of witchcraft or satanic church. Satan very rarely is directly related to persecution to the believer. He operates through his own chain of command, through the demonic armies, the principalities and powers. And so the demons obviously are very active in planet Earth. But we have to be careful not to always think that every problem we have is demonic. This is something that uh, became very popular in the latter part of the 20th century in a perverted form of, of uh, the doctrine of spiritual warfare. Demons are very real. Demons are involved in human history. But no demon can destroy an individual's volition. Only unbelievers can be demon-possessed, but everyone, believers and unbelievers alike, can be demon-influenced. And all human viewpoint is nothing more than demon-influenced. You may not have thought of it that way, but all human viewpoint is simply rationale for making life work apart from God. That was the kind of thinking that Satan exemplified when he fell. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to make things work without 100% dependency on the God who created him. And so the root of all human viewpoint thinking, the root of all human viewpoint thinking is this kind of uh, independent autonomy that was asserted by Satan at his fall. That is one of the characteristics of what we call Cosmic thinking from the Greek word cosmos translated worldly. Now, all worldly thinking, all human viewpoint philosophies have a certain element of truth to them. Some have a large element of truth to them. Because Satan recognizes that in this world that was created by God, there are certain things you just can't do without. So when you're living within God's system, you have to accept certain things as true. Certain things are part of reality. And so every false system has a certain element of truth to it. Every human viewpoint system of philosophy has uh, certain elements of truth in them. But just because something is 95% true and 5% false doesn't mean that's someplace you should go to find the answers in life. After all, if you were drinking a glass of water that was 95% water and 5% uh, arsenic, I don't think you would want to drink it. But you constantly find believers who want to compromise with all kinds of human viewpoint systems of thought to, to make life work because they'll rationalize, it works for me. It gives me peace. It gives me stability. I'm able to handle the problems of life by utilizing this system or that system of, uh, of, of human uh, help. And so there's always that pressure that comes from the cosmic system. As believers, we have to recognize that the Bible teaches a principle called the sufficiency of Scripture. And the sufficiency of Scripture means that the Word of God is all you need to handle any problem, any difficulty, any heartache in life. Whatever the situation, whether it is uh, excessive uh, success that brings its own 
pressures to bear on your life or whether it has to do with uh, negative adversity. Whatever the circumstances may be, the Word of God gives us the principles to handle it. God in His omniscience knew every problem that we would ever face as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's provided the information we need, the solution and the spiritual dynamics, in order to face and handle any and all circumstances and situations. First Corinthians 10.13 says that there is no testing taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who has provided a way to escape, uh, that you may be able to endure. God is faithful with the testing to provide a way of escape. Now, that's not so you can avoid the, the testing, but that is so that you can endure it, so that you can hang in there in the midst of that testing, no matter what it is. And you can have the confidence to know that you're not out there on your own, whatever it may be, if it's uh, problems with relationships, if it's problems with economics, if it's problems with the job, if it's problems with individual people, with uh, various systems, whatever it may be, you can have the confidence to know that you are not alone, that you are facing situations similar to other believers. Now, we have to recognize the real dangers of cosmic thinking. So I've just started putting this little chart together, indicating two Two branches of cosmic thinking. This exemplifies uh, Satan's thought, the kind of thinking that characterized his fall. On the one hand, you have this uh, arrogance that I mentioned a minute ago, the desire to be independent from God, this assertion of his autonomy. So one of the characteristics of human viewpoint thought or satanic thinking, or cosmic thinking. All of these are synonyms. They represent thinking that doesn't come from the Bible. Let me add a note here. What do you mean by biblical thinking? I could even go further and say a phrase that's familiar to most of you. What do you mean by Bible doctrine? Have you ever tried to define Bible doctrine? We use that term a lot, so much so that it becomes one of those catchphrases that everybody uses sort of a jargon. Uh, we know what we mean, but somebody at work may not have a clue what we mean when we use that phrase Bible doctrine. What is Bible doctrine? It is the sum total of the teaching that is, con- that is in the Word of God. It are, it's a summation of the principles and the procedures and the promises that are communicated in the Word of God. Doctrine is just a word for teaching, so it covers the whole gamut from from what some people might refer to as abstract theology to practical procedures. It's a when we talk about doctrine in the scriptures, it's very similar to how the word doctrine is used in a military context. It has to do with the the uh, the not only the philosophy that undergirds the application, but also the application of those procedures themselves. And so the word doctrine is a very usable concept, but it's a word that is not user-friendly in a postmodern environment. So we have to make sure we know what we're talking about so that we can explain that concept to other people. And another part of our thinking that we need to sharpen here is what do we mean by biblical? Oh, we'll read some and say, well, that's doctrinal. I've heard people make that comment, or that's biblical. What do we mean by that? Well, let me tell you what we don't mean by that. 
we don't mean something that appears to us to be consistent with what's taught in the Bible. That's not what it means to be biblical. For something to be biblical means that it is derived from the Scripture. It's derived from the Scripture. I've seen too many people over the course of my life get sucked into various philosophical systems or systems of self-help, psychology, human improvement, self-improvement, and they'll look at this system. They'll go hear somebody like uh, Werner Earhart and his Earhart Sensitivity Training, EST, for those of you who don't know, was very popular back in the 80s, a new new age self-help kind of program. And people go and say, oh, well, there's so many doctrinal principles there. Well, that's like saying I'm going to drink water with cyanide in it. Well, sure, it has a certain amount of truth in it. Every false system has truth in it. Mormonism has a certain amount of truth in it. Jehovah's Witness theology has a certain amount of truth in it. Hinduism has a certain amount of truth in it. The Bhagavad Gita has a certain amount of truth in it. But I sure don't want you to go in there to try to extrapolate what little truth there is in those systems for your benefit. Because they're, they're totally encased in false teaching, in a cosmic orientation. So that even though you have a number of details within the system that might be accurate in and of themselves, you can't divorce them from the way they're structured within the system. So just because you look at something and go, well, that's doctrinal, don't be sucked in. It's only biblical if it and its context derive from the Scripture. Satan is the master Satan is the master of camouflage and counterfeit thought. And that's how he sucks people in. So we have to understand the basic structure of his thinking. And the first aspect is this idea of arrogance or autonomy, that somehow I can solve the problems in life, face the issues in life, find happiness in life, find meaning in life, without being 100% dependent on the Word of God and on God's power, provision, and promises to solve the issues, the problems that I face in life. So it's characterized by arrogance, which can be a negative, overt arrogance, or it can be a pseudo-humility. But it's always, uh, always characterized by arrogance and autonomy at some level, that I can somehow solve the situation live harmoniously with people around me and the circumstances around me without relying exclusively on the Word of God. And in order to spot that, you have to know the truth. You have to be fully committed to the Word of God. You can't just show up at church once a week or twice a week and to learn how to think biblically. See, that's the other problem that we have, is most people today don't want to think They don't want to learn how to truly analyze situations and circumstances around them from a biblical viewpoint. They don't know enough about the Bible to be able to do that, which is a real tragedy. When you face a situation in life where there is a challenge to you and to your understanding of Scripture, you should know the Bible well enough to say, okay, where are similar examples to this situation in Scripture. Where can I go in the Old Testament and find a similar situation as Elijah, Daniel, Moses, Job? Where do I go? 
And that's how we should operate. We should know the Word of God well enough to where we can find those parallel situations and then go look at them and say, how did they handle the situation or how did they fail? And then apply those principles to our spiritual life. That's what it means to think biblically. We need to have our souls immersed with the Word of God. That means we have to not only be in Bible class, listening to tapes, the exposition of the Word, but you need to be familiar with the Word. You need to read the Word. You should read the Word through the Bible. Try to read it through once a year. That's not that difficult. You should make it a goal. If you've never done it, try to... You should, I can't believe there are Christians who go their whole life and never read the whole Bible. Can you imagine? I know half of you are sitting there going, gosh, I don't want to know. I've never read the Bible. But I know it. I remember when I was, uh, I must have been a junior in, junior in college or maybe a senior in college, and I thought, I don't know the Old Testament. I know a few Bible stories. I know about Joseph and I know about Daniel and Abraham. But I don't understand its structure. If I were to pick up the Bible in First Kings and start reading it, I wouldn't know what was going on. And I went down to a little Christian bookstore in Nacogdoches, and they had this, uh, this little book called an Old Testament Digest. And what they had done was they had taken the Living Bible, which I don't recommend as a study version because it's not a translation, it's a paraphrase. They had taken the Living Bible and they took a lot of the uh, technical detail in terms of the genealogies and some of the uh, descriptions of all the services and the, and the sacrifices out. And they had just uh, basically done a Reader's Digest version of the Old Testament so that you got an understanding of the whole flow, who was who, who, how, who related to whom. And I read it through in about a month. And, after, and it gave me a tremendous perspective on the Old Testament and how everything just sort of fit together. And see, most Christians don't have that. So you start talking about Abimelech or you talk about Adonai Bezek or Melchizedek or you talk about Hezekiah and people just, they they don't have any kind of structure to hang that, orient that to. And so they're they're just kind of lost hanging on to the principles. But you should know your Bible. Everybody knows that if you read, there are going to be things you don't understand, and you just uh, underline it or make a note in, your, in the margin, and, then, and you can come back and, and investigate it later and find out what it means. But uh, people down through the centuries, Christians down through the centuries, have read their Bibles over and over and over again. In fact, I... Um, Someone recently told me about, uh, some of you have seen the movie Khartoum where uh, Charlton Heston played uh, uh, Chinese Gordon who was a well-known Victorian gentleman. They, he went digging around biblical, in, in archaeology in the Holy Land, came up with his own view of where the tomb was and where Calvary was and uh, all of this. But he, he, they have a copy of his, his Bible in the British Museum, and every page is marked up. You can hardly read the text. I mean, these were the kind of men that, that dominated uh, leadership in the 19th century, men who were, read their Bibles. They were mature believers, and that should be our example today. So Cosmic One always emphasizes human independence, human autonomy. Cosmic Two always is antagonistic to the word, there's always a hostility. You, you know, as Satan said in the garden, "Well, God did not say." 
See, that's your perfect example. Well, that's not true. And you see this constant assault on the veracity of the Word of God. You see it in the creation-evolution debate. You see it in many of the morals and ethics debates today. You see it in the uh, Da Vinci Code, challenge to the, to the Scripture. So there's always this hostility to the Word of God that that's not true. There is, a, there is another way, and that characterizes all human viewpoint thinking. Now, what I want to do now is to give you an example, give you an example of, from the scripture, of how to handle living in a hostile environment. How do you handle living like these Christians in Pergamum in a society and a culture that is completely hostile to what you believe to be true? So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. So many great lessons in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 is a tremendous uh, example to us of believers who are forced into a pagan structure where where they are specifically put within a human viewpoint education system that is designed to completely tear down uh, all the divine viewpoint in the soul and replace it with human viewpoint. Other men in the Old Testament who faced this same type of experience as Daniel would be uh, Joseph. Uh, Joseph goes to, is of course sold into slavery, he goes, is taken down to Egypt and uh, he's sold as a slave and then he is falsely accused of uh, uh, rape and seduction and he's thrown into prison. And there in prison, he just has to wait on the Lord. And eventually, he is released from prison because he accurately interprets the dream of the Pharaoh. And he's elevated to the highest position in Pharaoh's court. He's number two to Pharaoh in a culture that is one of the most uh, anti-godly cultures in all of the ancient world. Just rank paganism everywhere he looked. He is surrounded by... Uh, the, all the deities of Egypt. Then you have Moses, who grows up in the court of, of uh, Pharaoh, and Hebrews tells us that he, he, he just rejected all the riches, all the wealth, all of the uh, benefits that he could get physically and materially from Egypt in order to suffer reproach with God's people because that was the basis for truth. Now, that's just an idea that is foreign to so many people today is that I'm going to give up all the status symbols of life because I'm going to put all of my emphasis on truth. Truth and living life on God's principles and dependence upon Him are more, is more important to me than any physical comfort, any financial gain, or any success that has value in the eyes of friends, family, and those around me. Daniel's another example. Ezra is another example. These were believers who came to spiritual maturity in the midst of cultures that were extremely antagonistic to everything they, they believed. And yet today, as we live in 21st century America, where the culture around us is becoming more and more hostile, to biblical Christianity. We can learn how to handle this in a wise manner. 
what we see with Daniel is that it's possible to survive in the midst of a pagan, uh, human viewpoint educational system. That if you have to go to college or university or in some cases in the companies that you work for, you are forced to go through various uh, continuing education or employee, what I would call employee modification systems that um, force everybody to think a certain way about problem solving and about dealing with life and how you can handle that. And so if they could do it, and it was much worse for them, you can too. One of the commonalities that each of these men have was the role of their parents. Take note, parents. The role of their parents in their early training. Joseph was trained well when he's a young man. Before he's ever sold into slavery, he has a a good understanding of who God is and the plan of God uh, at his time. Moses who is raised by his mother after he's found by the daughter of uh, Pharaoh in the, in the basket, in the, the ark, in the bulrushes. She looks for someone who can uh, nourish him, who can feed him, who uh, can breastfeed him and nurse him. And so not only is he fed physically, but his mother uh, takes him and trains him in doctrine in those early formative years. It seems very strange to us in America, but in many parts of the world today, and especially at that time, young children weren't weaned until they were five, six, seven years of age. Now, uh, I know just that very thought is a distraction to some of you. Uh, I remember that in my first church, first time I was aware of this, was the lady who was my pianist quit breastfeeding her son when he was old enough to understand why he wasn't going to breastfeed anymore. I had never seen anything like that. But that's typical. It's also uh, a method of birth control in some, some cultures is to continue uh, to, to uh, nurse the infants until they're five or six years of age. And so during that time, Moses was taught the Word. Moses learned all that the education system of Egypt had to provide for him. Daniel as well. But Daniel and his uh, three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, down in verse 6, are, were well trained by their parents. So when they hit the adversity that they faced, when they were taken as captives to Babylon and forced into this brainwashing system of, the, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar's bureaucracy, they knew how to handle it. They had no choice. See, today what happens is you send off your college-age kids to some great school and they're brainwashed in human viewpoint paganism and at the end of their freshman year they chunk their Christianity and they don't darken the door of a church for another 12 or 15 years if ever again. It's uh, partly your fault as a parent. Uh, As I watch what's going on on the scene today, I am more and more convinced that parents need to send their kids to the first two years of college, which is pretty much the same anywhere, at some good Christian university. That doesn't mean they're always going to agree with doctrine, but at least everything they're taught is within a biblical framework, and they're not going to be in an environment where everything you have taught them is being torn down on a daily or hourly basis. 
And then after they've had two or three years uh, there, then they can go someplace else where they're going to, where they can develop a, a career. But many of these Christian universities now, uh, like Cedarville University up in Ohio, where Dan Ingram went to school, has one of the greatest uh, uh, computer programs of any school in the country, highly rated. Now, Liberty University also has a number of solid uh, programs. There's a Grace University up in Omaha. And a number of these schools have really solid programs other than just being a Christian liberal arts school, which was the, the old paradigm a number of years ago. But they can go there and at least they can be taught a number of subjects within a biblical viewpoint. But here's a situation where they didn't have any choice. And there's a challenge. They're forced to go through a certain regimen. First of all, their names are changed. Their names are changed because their previous names, their birth names, all had something to do with doctrine. Dan- Daniel meant God is my judge. Hananiah meant that Yah, Hananiah, that last syllable refers to Yahweh. And Hanan is a word, Hebrew word for grace. Yahweh is gracious. Mishael. El being the word for God. Uh, Mish mean, is the Hebrew for who. The name Mishael means who is like El, who is like God. And Azariah also has that last syllable, Yah, for Yahweh. Uh, Atzer is the Hebrew word for helper. It's the same word that's used back there in Genesis chapter 2 when God said, I'm going to make an Atzer for Adam. I'm going to make a helper an assistant. So Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. So it indicates that these boys were all raised by parents who were positive to the word and understood doctrine. But in typical human viewpoint fashion, they're going to get new names to try to eradicate that doctrine that's in their soul. So they're given new names such as uh, Belteshazzar, meaning Bel was the chief god in the Babylonian pantheon, and Belteshazzar meant Bel is my protector. Shadrach from the Akkadian Sudur Aku meant at the command of Aku, the moon god. So, you see, their their identity is being changed by their names. They're seeking to impose pagan thought. The same thing for all of the other names. Now, we see a real clue as to how to handle paganism in verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. See, there is a predetermination that I'm, here's where I'm going to draw the line. We have to recognize that there's a thousand battles that we could fight. We have to identify the ones that are crucial. And he identifies the one that is crucial. He's not going to defile himself. He makes this decision ahead of time. If you're living today, you have all kinds of decisions that you have to make if you're a Christian in today's workforce. I remember in the 80s, in the 80s, I had a man in my church who worked for Southwestern Bell, and he had to go through basically a new age indoctrination course as part of his training at Southwestern Bell. They were taught to do guided imagery and all this occultic methodology. Uh, I've talked to other people who have been taken basically through some kind of an EST program in training, or you have some other system like the uh, Covey training with the, uh, Stephen Covey and the Seven uh, Highly Effective Habits of Pathetic People or whatever it is. And uh, 
in fact, when I first went up to Connecticut, I think uh, uh, one of my deacons was, was, had to go through that with his work, and he just came home just pulling his hair out uh, every single day. And if you're an educator, I mean, they go through these things in school systems every few years where you have to go through this kind of uh, uh, reorientation. And as a believer, you've got to decide how you're going to handle this. Because it's just another attempt of the cosmic system to reprogram you and brainwash you with systems of, of uh, self-improvement, teaching you how to handle the problems in your life without being dependent on the Word of God. And you may be involved in a Fortune 500 company and get elevated to some position of managerial responsibility, and now it's your job to uh, impose this training program on your employees. And as a believer, you're saying, I don't believe this. So you have to make a decision where you're going to draw the line and how you're going to handle it. Now look at how Daniel handles it. This just is a picture of tremendous wisdom. Verse 9, you see the, the, the background of God working. God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who's appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. Look, this is my life on the line, Daniel. I'm not going to let you get away with changing the diet. Now, let me back up a minute. The reason Daniel's making the diet an issue is because there's specific dietary revelation in the Mosaic Law that he can't violate. He's not just taking some principle he thinks is doctrinal and making that the issue. He's making a specific point of revelation the issue. And it has to do with diet. And he also recognizes that this diet that he's being forced to, to uh, uh, practice is being imposed upon him has a religious connotation to it. And so it's a compromise of his core doctrinal values to change his diet. But then he argues, he presents a case to the chief eunuch in verse 12. He says, please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now notice what he's doing. This is, this is real wisdom here. He doesn't say, like you'll find most people, but the Bible says, Mosaic Law says, I can't eat that. You know, he doesn't do that. He, he's, he knows that that's not going to cut any eyes with, with this chief eunuch. Now what is going to matter to the chief eunuch? I'm going to be healthier and stronger. We're going to run faster than everybody else. We're going to leap taller buildings, and we're going to, you know, outrun all the bullets. Okay, just give us a chance. He's going to appeal to him on the basis of the unbeliever's value system, and he's going to use that to turn it back on him. That's real wisdom. See, we have to think in a hostile environment. We have to think creatively about how to engage the hostile culture around us. In your job, you work for many corporations, you're going to be forced to do certain things and implement certain policies that you know are, are wrong, that are complicated. And you, you have to keep your, your, your mental concentration up so that you don't get sucked into the human viewpoint system of thinking around you without necessarily losing your job. And the greatest illustration of this 
uh, came to me from Charlie Clough a number of years ago. Charlie, as most of you know, is a, a chief meteorologist at Aberdeen Proving Ground. He's a government employee, so all the government social engineering programs, you know, are, come down on his shoulders. And so, of course, he's called in and he has to, uh, you know, they, they want to make sure that he's not going to be um, prejudicial or uh, judgmental to any uh, homosexuals that uh, come his way and, and that he has to employ. He has to be an e- equal opportunity employer. So he, ha- he can't be judgmental. So they come in, of course, they want to know if, you, if you're promoted and you're in this job situation, you hire people, would it be a problem for you if, there's a, if, there, if you have to hire a homosexual? But Charlie's smart. I mean, he is so sharp at how he handles this because if you answer that the wrong way, you've basically given up your divine viewpoint framework in order to go along. So how can you handle this question without compromising your own integrity as a believer? Well, first of all, you don't, you don't use the word homosexual. Because that was a word that was originally introduced in order to uh, destroy the breakdown between homosexual and heterosexual. The very terminology was designed to, to uh, imply that there's equality of choice. So Charlie's response was, well, I don't think I would have a problem hiring a sodomite. I've got adulterers and liars and thieves working for me already. So I won't have a problem with a sodomite. Now, sodomy is, and that always catches people. Oh, that's such a horrible word. It's the legally correct word. So you've protected yourself. You've used the correct legal terminology. And instead of acting as if everything's okay with being a sodomite, you've immediately classified them with all the other sinners that you have to put up with at work. But you haven't isolated them as if they're a special category of perverted deviant. They're just one among all the other perverted deviants that I have to work with. And so you do it with a smile on your face. You're not being judgmental. And yet you haven't allowed yourself to compromise your position at all. And you turn the tables on the other side without putting yourself in a weak position. We have to think We have to be very wise in how we handle this. Otherwise, the cosmic system is going to roll over us and you're going to wake up one day wondering how you got where you are, where where the compromises began. And Daniel's a great example. He said, just test us. Just give us a chance. Give us a 10-day trial. And at the end of 10 days... Now, this must have been a heck of a dietary difference to show a difference in intelligence physical appearance and stamina at the end of ten days. But obviously God is working in the background. So in verse 14, the eunuch consented with them in this manner, matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. So he, he wins the battle, but he, he shows us how to do it. The foundation, though, is... Back in verse 8, he purposed in his heart. You see the same thing going on with Ezra in Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart, that is volitional 
terminology here. Heart refers to the, in both of these passages, indicates the innermost part of the individual. It's a synonym for the soul. He had set, that's volition. He had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. That's learning doctrine. And to practice it. I'm not just going to fill up my doctrinal note, but I'm going to implement what I learn in Bible class. And to teach his statutes. See, Ezra was a priest. To teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. But it starts with that decision. And that's the issue for the believer living in a hostile environment. Are we going to make doctrine the number one priority in our life? Then that's the only thing that matters. How are you going to implement that? And what are you going to do when the conflicts come up? And they will. There's going to be, as soon as you decide, I'm going to be in Bible class all the time. I'm going to make doctrine number one. Everything's going to happen to try to affect that. And you have got to decide what you're going to do and start making decisions accordingly. Otherwise, you'll end up being steamrolled in the Christian life by cosmic thinking. And you'll end up thinking, well, doctrine doesn't work. It's doctrine always works. It's that we as individuals fail to be consistent in the application of doctrine. We'll come back next time and we will look at the uh, practice of, uh, or look at the condemnation that God brings against the compromisers in Pergamum with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this evening, for the things that you provided for us in your word as you teach us, instruct us, provide examples for us, knowing that your grace is always sufficient and your word is always sufficient. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their eternal life, we pray that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do to have eternal life is to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. It's so simple. Yet most people mess it up because they try to introduce their own works, their own efforts, their own morality to try to impress God. But God is not impressed with anything that we do, only with what Jesus Christ did. And when you put your faith in Christ and trust Him alone for your salvation, you will instantly gain eternal life. God the Father will regenerate you. You will have new spiritual life and an eternal life that can never be taken from you. The only condition of salvation is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.